and again, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning, and I just want to encourage each and every single one of you guys, anytime that we have an opportunity to serve, it is a blessing. Amen? And so I think sometimes we can just, well, I didn't get an amen back. It's a blessing to serve. Amen? Someone's like, well, maybe. It depends. <laughs> depends what you're talking about. I'm not going to amen that. You might loop me into something. But um, it's just an opportunity, guys. And I, I just think it's such a, a privilege to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in any and every capacity. And so I encourage you not just to listen to those announcements, but pray through those. If you're uh, a gentleman and you're looking for an opportunity to serve, ushering, and we have the food bank. Man, we feed hundreds of people who are hurting. And to be a part of that, it's exciting. We were saved to serve. And so um, we're bond servants of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is our church, our. And so, man, let's do our part to serve the body, to serve one another, to encourage one another. And uh, so pray about that. If you guys have opportunities, are always um, needing uh, servants. And it's just a blessing. So with that being said, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 1 through 7. Here in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul begins to have a new thought process or begins to introduce to us a new idea. As we know, in the first five chapters of the Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul very beautifully and eloquently laid out the doctrine of justification by faith. It's beautiful because it has nothing to do with us and we can be justified by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just an amazing, amazing thing. And so he laid that out very, very clearly and beautifully in the midst of showing justification by faith. He had to prove something. And so he showed and he proved that every single person from the moralist to the heathen is dead in our sins and our trespasses, thus needing justification to be in a right standing with God. And that right standing has nothing to do with keeping the law, do's and don'ts. It has to do with placing our faith in the finished work of the cross. And so the next three chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to introduce this new idea, this new concept, and it has to do with sanctification, our sanctification. And sanctification is a fancy word for being set apart, becoming more like him. And I think that is a blessing, that he didn't just leave us where he found us. He didn't just justify us, declare us righteous and reconcile us to God, but he has a plan to make us more like him. The closer we get to him, the more like him we become, to be holy and righteous and set apart. And the reason we need to be set apart, the reason we can be set apart, is because we are dead to sin. So the first five chapters show that we are dead in our sins, and now we can be sanctified because we are dead to sin. It no longer has power or authority or control over God's people any longer. And that's the blessing. And so God wants us to be set apart, set apart from sin, set apart from the things of this world, but not just that, set apart unto him for his service and for to be useful for the master. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, um, he talked about in his kingdom, in his house, there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, vessels of wood and vessels of silver. And he says he, we would, he would desire that we be sanctified, set apart, those vessels of honor set apart, prepared for every good work. And that's what God wants. That's a sanctification process. We come to him, we become like him, and we are prepared and for every good work, set apart from the things of this world. And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6, and it says this What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So 
may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? You see, the Apostle Paul anticipated questions that might arise from some in regards to his teaching on grace, the gospel of grace, the message of grace, which is unmerited, undeserved favor that we receive from God. Nothing we do to earn to deserve his grace. And so he had an idea that some might ask a question, some might inquire, and so he goes ahead and asks it in advance and uses it for a teaching opportunity. And so in verse one, he asked the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace so that sin may abound more? The apostle Paul is picking up from his final point that he made in chapter five. Some might read uh, Romans chapter five, verse 20 and 21 alone. And if they didn't understand the teachings on justification by grace and through grace, they might get misled. They might not understand or get confused about the true meaning of grace. It would be easy just reading those two. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. It says this, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, Grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Taking those two scriptures alone, one might mistakenly think that sinning would be a good thing. That continuing in sin as a life of a believer might be a good thing because it would give an opportunity for God to be glorified and to give grace. After all, what he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. The Apostle Paul just got done teaching about grace. We know that grace is a good thing, so why not continue in sin so we could receive good things? It'd be easy for someone to think that, so why even stop? Let's continue to sin so that grace could abound more. You see, this question would no doubt arise from somebody who didn't understand grace to begin with, but that would think grace apart from the law would not promote or encourage holiness and, and righteousness. You see, they were coming out of the law, and they thought the law, rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, would keep people on the straight path. And as we know, God has no desire to have a law or legal relationship with his people, but a love relationship. Love is what motivates us to obedience and to right living for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when this question is asked, the Apostle Paul quickly and very firmly answers this question himself in verse 2, where he says, may it never be. This phrase, may it never be, was a phrase that the Apostle Paul would use 14 times throughout his epistles, 10 times in the book of Romans alone. This language in the Greek, it's very strong and it's very pointed, and it carries the idea of being outraged that anyone would think such an idea. And so he says, may it never be that a true believer would think or carry that attitude or behavior that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound more. He was disgusted and outraged by it. And so this is very, very strong language. Why would he be so upset about this? May it never be continue in sin so that grace should abound more because a true believer in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, understanding the sacrifice, understanding what he did on the cross would never continue in that type of behavior or have that type of attitude. 
It reminds me of a story that my friend once told me. He was a missionary in another country, and he was laboring. He was serving the Lord very, very fervently. Him and his wife, they left the comforts of Orange County to go plant a church, and there was an amazing work that was taking place. And some members of his congregation, they wanted to bless him and his wife. They wanted to send them away to a vacation just to rest and recuperate, draw closer to each other and to the Lord. And so they took advantage of this. They took care of the kids for them, and they sent them away. They were going to take care of all the lodging for them. And so they get to this resort, and they're looking around, and they are blown away by the beauty and the majesty of this place. And they're just thanking and praising God that somebody would bless them with this. Uh, They were not making a lot of money at the time. They were missionaries. And so they were just overwhelmed by this gracious gift unto them. And so they checked into this hotel, and as they checked in, they put their credit card down. They said, you know, we're going to be eating here. We'll charge everything to the room. And so they're just so excited. They had saved some money, and they just really wanted to have a good time. And so they made dinner reservations on the resort that evening, and they went there, and they went all in, okay? So they were just like, we're going to live it up. We're on vacation. Let's take advantage of this. And so they began to order appetizer after appetizer. Then they had some nice steak, a 29-day aged ribeye. I mean, they were just living it up. And after this, after this appetizer and after this, you know, beautiful meal, they couldn't decide between the cheesecake or the chocolate souffle. Clearly they weren't in the spirit. Everybody knows they should have chose the cheesecake, but they said, why choose? Let's do both. All right. So they just got all these desserts, all these appetizers. And that was just the first night. They were doing massages. They were just really being blessed. They were taking advantage of us. So at the time they went to to check out from the hotel, the clerk said, hey, um, you know, we're going to check you out. And so they said, just put all of our charges, the food and the massages. Go ahead and put that all on the credit card that I put down. At that time, the clerk let them know there is no charges. The person, the family who blessed you guys with the lodging, they took care of everything. Immediately his heart dropped. He looked at his wife. No, no, there must be some mistake. No, we, they paid for the lodging. We were going to pay for everything. They said, no, they took care of everything. Immediately, this blessing, this amazing vacation, the massages, the appetizers, <laughs> chocolate souffle, the cheesecake. They look at each other and said, he looked at her and said, babe, you didn't have to order all four of those appetizers. <laughs> you know? Well, you were the one who wanted two desserts. Immediately, they began to feel bad. They felt like they took advantage. If they knew that somebody else was paying for this, they would have lived a little differently. They didn't need four appetizers. One would have been sufficient. <laughs> they probably wouldn't have did the 29-age ribeye. The normal ribeye might have been okay. But all of a sudden, they felt terrible. And that is the heart of a true believer, understanding that Christ paid an amazing price. We're not going to continue in sin. We're not going to continue doing those things because we understand what he did for that. The price that he paid. And so the Apostle Paul says, certainly not. And so in attempting to clear up some of this type of thinking, the Apostle Paul asks a question. Not only does he say certainly not, but he says, how can somebody who has died to sin continue to live in it? We are dead to sin. So we're not going to continue to live in it. Therefore, we're not going to continue to sin. That grace may abound more. This concept of being dead to sin and alive in Christ is really a key component of the next three chapters of the book of Romans. And I don't think it's just 
a key, cha- a key point. I think it should be a key point in our life, one that we often come back to and meditate early and often in our quiet time with the Lord, that we are truly dead to sin and alive in Christ, something that we should meditate and think and praise the Lord for. When Jesus died on the cross, we know that he was our propitiation. He was the acceptable sacrifice. He was a substitute for us. He died the death that we should have and that we deserved to die. Why? So that we can be reconciled to God. But as we see here in verse 2, we're not only, he was not only a substitute, but he was a representative for us on the cross as we died through him and with him. We learned these past couple of weeks of imputed righteousness, that Christ imputes his righteousness, and when God looks down upon us, he sees us, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And here, that same concept, when God looks down, he sees us as having died with him, through him, to sin as well. So we pick up in verse 3, and it says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." The Apostle Paul in verse 3 begins to expound more, and he begins to ask some more questions to teach and to really open up the eyes of his readers. And I have found that, especially in evangelism and sharing your faith, asking questions is a good thing. It enables you to find out where people are at, to what they believe and why they believe. It enables you to have uh, tools to be able to minister to people and to really you know, impart the gospel to them effectively. And so he asks a question here, and he starts in verse 3 by saying, Do you not know? And so by this, he begins to explain things that believers should know, that believers should understand. And with this, this question, I think we're reminded of a very subtle tactic of the enemy. And I believe the enemy loves to keep believers in ignorance about things that we should know. Because if he can keep us in ignorance about things that we should know about the Lord, his truths, his precepts, if we're ignorant of these things, it will hold us back from a closer relationship to the Lord and being who he has called us to be. And so it's important that we know that we grow in him, that we seek him so that we aren't ignorant to the schemes of the enemy, but ignorant to the things that will help us grow and be the men and women that God has called us to be. I think of a couple stories that popped to my mind about people in the scriptures that were ignorant to things that could have changed their life. You remember the story of Jesus in the woman at the well. He meets this woman and he begins to have a conversation with the woman at the well. And first off, she was shocked that Jesus would even talk to her. She said, what are you being a Jewish man, a rabbi, even talking to me? Jesus asks her for a glass of water and she says, you know, she was surprised, but she didn't know a couple of things. She said, if Jesus told her, if you knew who was talking to you, the gift of God and the plans that he had for you, you would be asking me for living water. You see, this woman was confused on a couple of things. She didn't know who God was, 
the plans that God had for her, and Jesus thoroughly explained those things to her, and her life was immediately changed. But not just her life, was it? She went back to her village, and a revival took place in her whole village, all because her eyes were open to some things that she was ignorant to. Things that if she had known, her life would have been drastically changed earlier. And this was a truth. Who God was, she didn't know. The plans that God had for her, she didn't know these things. But once she knew them, she was no longer ignorant to them. She could have a relationship with God, and her life was changed. I think about one of my favorite Bible characters, Gideon, right? We all love Gideon. We know that he was a mighty man of valor, that he led God's army against insurmountable odds to victory. We know about the mighty man of Gideon, but we forget how we were introduced to Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 6. You see, Gideon was actually hiding, and he began as a coward. And when God came to him, he says, you, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Gideon looked around and said, there must be somebody else in the room. I'm hiding. I'm scared of the Midianites. They're going to come and take my food. You see, Gideon failed to understand something, who he was in Christ. And who he was with the power of God upon him. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was stuck and he saw himself and identifying himself as a coward, as in his own strength. But you see, God saw him differently. And it's important to understand the way that God sees us. Because if we don't understand who we are in Christ and how God sees us, we'll never be able to be who God desires for us to be. Once he realized that, his life was changed. When he realized it wasn't by his strength or by his might, but by God... His life was changed. And I believe if we can grab a hold of some of those things, if we know that and we walk in that, our life will be changed. So many of God's people, believers, they just are held back by fear. I can't do what God wants me to do. I can't be who God wants me to be because we make it about ourselves. But once we realize it's about God in us, God through us, man, we're changed. We can do great things like Gideon. And so... He asked them, do you not know? And so the first thing that he wanted them to know, we see in verse 3, was that all who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. The first thing he wants them to know about this identity that we have when we are baptized, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a part of, we are immersed in Jesus Christ through his death. Paul is talking about our new identity in Christ here. We are immersed in him. We are baptized deep waters with him. When we give our lives to the Lord, immediately we are connected to him through his death. And that's what it symbolizes. It says, by us giving our lives to the Lord, we are dying to ourselves and thus linked. And our identity is now in him. We've died to our old self. And as Colossians chapter 3 said, our lives are now hidden in him, baptized in him, immersed in him. He said, did you not know that? This is important, that we have a new identity and that we walk in it and operate in that. He says, we need to know that. And so in verse 4, the Apostle Paul gives a practical illustration of what this immersion, what this baptism looks like by the symbolism of water baptism. You see, our water baptism, it it pictures the baptism into Christ and his death, what it looks like. When we are immersed or go down into the water, that's what it looks like to be buried with him through baptism. We die to ourselves. We are buried with him in the water. That's what baptism into his death 
pictures, but it takes place in our heart. But symbolically, we can see it pictured and illustrated through baptism. We are buried. There's a death that takes place. That's why when I baptize people, I love to keep them underwater for about two minutes. You know, right? I really want to understand what that baptism being buried in him looks like. When I start seeing bubbles, I bring them out. I almost died. Amen. You did. You died. You really understand what that looks like? Symbolic. <gasps> By the way, we're having baptism next month. And so, you know, man, you want to really feel what it looks like to be buried. We're going to, we're going to go. But that's, that's the beauty. That's the symbolism in it. We are dying to ourself. We are baptized into his death. But it's not just about us being buried with him and identified with him and a part of his death. But also, we are raised to life with him, as it says here in verse 4, that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in the newness of life. He didn't leave us there. He didn't leave, just as God didn't leave Jesus in the tomb, but he raised him back to life, so too with us. When we die to ourselves, he gives us a newness of life. He brings us back this new life that we are to walk in, that we are to operate in. This is spiritual. Now, in the beginning of Romans, we found about a lot of these spiritual acts that people were doing that they thought made them right in God's eyes. Things like uh, circumcision. They thought just because they did this physical act that that made them right before God. But it wasn't the physical act. It was the spiritual meaning. And so too with water baptism. It symbolizes the work that God has done in our hearts, in our lives. We have died to ourselves and dead to sin and now alive in Christ. And so baptism means nothing unless we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is what? In Christ. He is a new what? Creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's what water, baptize, uh, water baptism symbolizes. The death and the newness of life. We are new creations. And he's given us a newness of life. And that's what it's about. That's what we are to walk in this newness of life. We are new creations. Our minds, our hearts, our motives, everything that we do are now controlled by the things of the spirits. Because we have died to ourselves and now we're alive in Christ. Everything changes. That wasn't the case before. Our minds, our hearts, our motives were constantly evil to please the desires of the flesh, not the desires of the spirit. And so things change and we are to walk in this newness of life. We've been justified by faith, and now the sanctification process takes place. Because we're dead to sin and alive in Christ, we need to become more like him, walking with him. And this is what sanctification is all about, walking in this newness of life, seeking after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul taught this throughout all of his epistles. And one of my favorite sections, he spoke on the same thing to um, the church in Ephesus. If you can turn, actually you don't have to, it'll be on the screen. Ephesus chapter four, not Ephesus chapter four, Ephesians chapter four. <laughs> Ephesians chapter four. Um, and we're gonna start in verse 17. It says this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded 
from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of hardness of heart. And so it says, look, he talks about this. You no longer walk how you used to, but there's a newness of life that we are to conduct and carry ourselves in. It says they have become callous in verse 19, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Verse 23, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We don't conduct ourselves that way no longer. We are alive in Christ, dead to sin. And so we need to walk in this newness of life, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so everything changes. And that's a good way. People oftentimes ask me, man, I'm not really sure if I'm saved. And it's so sad to see people that are struggled or, or, or doubt their salvation. I believe that is something that God wants every believer to know is to be, have the assurance of salvation. And I simply ask people, you know, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Let's talk about the newness. I mean, do you have a desire to please the Lord? Do you have a desire to serve the Lord, to seek after him? Yes, I do with all of my heart. Do you do that? Not perfectly, but do you, is that your heart? That's my heart. Then you're in a good place because there was a time where none of us wanted to do that. And so you can tell this newness of life. And now we just need to walk. The closer we get to him, the more we are like him. The sanctification process, it just happens naturally as we seek after the Lord. We need to walk in this new life. In verse 5, Paul gives them and us some great encouragement by saying, if we have become likeness of him in his death, then we also should become in his resurrection. And the resurrection is something that we look forward to and long for and that we have a hope in. And so often we think of the resurrection of being with Christ in a future situation. But no, we are encouraged. In this, we can be encouraged by the present and the future realities of the resurrection to come. And I think we see both the present and the past realities of the resurrection and how it applies to our life and how we can change our life in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Um, it can be up there. It'll, it'll go on the board. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 1 says, Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things of above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. It talks about, for believers, a current resurrection. We have been raised up. We have been given life. We are dead to sin, alive in Christ, and we are seated with him. Therefore, our eyes need to be focused up. So it already has happened presently, but also in verse 4 it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And so since you've been raised, but also when the revelation of Christ, we will be with him in glory. So there's, yes, it's not just things to come. We currently have been raised up and given life, and we need to walk in that. 
Look at verse 6 of Romans chapter 6. It says this, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. When Jesus went to the cross, this is a beautiful section of scripture, so much truth in there. When he went to the cross, he died not only for the sins of the world, um, not only were our sins paid for, but we see right here very clearly that our old self was crucified with him. With him. It wasn't just what he did. We were a part of that. Paul echoed the same idea in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Our old self has been crucified. And that's good news. Because the old self was on a road that led to destruction. That was death, and it was pleasing to the flesh. And that's what the old self symbolizes. That's what the old self pictures, the sin nature, the rebellious part of who we were, who was crucified, and all that we were in the flesh. But when we died, it says it was crucified when we died, now we're alive in Christ, an exchange took place. The great exchange, and we read a little bit about that in Colossians chapter 3, and it'll be on the board. Colossians chapter 3 talks about this great exchange that happened. It says this in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self. Again, this, the old self has been crucified. We laid it aside, in verse 9, with its evil practices. And we've put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The old self was crucified. When we died to ourselves, an exchange took place. We put on the new man, and we reckoned continuously and constantly the old man dead. And because of that, we see in verse 6, our body of sin might be done away with. Now, this phrase, done away with, is an interesting phrase. And in the Greek, it means to render inactive or to paralyze. And so, because we are dead to sin and because the old man is crucified, the flesh, the part that controlled us, is rendered inactive. It is paralyzed. It no longer has power or authority, active power over us. As we see in verse 10, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're free. We're free to walk with God, to talk with God. Sin no longer has power, authority, or control over a believer. And these are things that the Apostle Paul said, do you not know? Sadly, many believers know this, but they don't operate in this. Sin no longer has control over us. There was a time where I was completely controlled, a slave to sin, controlled to under an evil master, but those days are done. And this is a truth that we need to constantly remember because sadly, we don't operate and walk in that life. But that's the great news. We're freed. It no longer has power over us. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect or sinless, even though that should be our heart. But because we are dead to sin, because the old man is crucified, it's been rendered inactive and paralyzed, we can sin less and we can be holy as he is holy. And the sanctification process can take place. The more we seek him, the more we are like him because we're free. We're free. But what exactly 
are we free from? What are we free from? Well, we're free from a couple of things. First, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin has no longer any effect over a believer. We know the wages of sin is what? Death. The believer, we don't have to worry about death anymore. We're going to live forever with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We no longer have to worry about being judged or, or penalized or separated from God because of our sin. The penalty has been dealt with. We've received, we've died, we've crucified the old man, and now we are alive in Christ. So we are freed from the penalty of sin. And that should just take a weight off of our shoulders. A weight off our shoulders. You know when you're guilty and you've done something wrong? It, it feels terrible. And I tell you what, you, you know, you can have the best poker face, but when somebody, guilt wears on people. I mean, you can see that, right? And it wears, I see guilt so often in my dog. I tell you what, dogs cannot play poker. I tell you what, man, dogs give it away. There's things I don't even know. I'll walk into my room and my dog will just look at me. And I'm like, what did you do? And I'm like, like, normally if he just said, you know, I'd be like, I wouldn't know if something was wrong. But now he gives me the guilty look. And he just pops right up and he just goes right into his crate. I'm like, what did you do? Tell me what you did. I know I'm looking around, you pee on the floor, like, what's going on? I have no clue what he did, but he told me he did something. He just couldn't hide the guilt and the shame that was upon him. And that was us. When we were sinning against the Holy God, we knew that, man, that, that penalty of sin hanging over us, it weighed upon us. And so praise God that we're freed from the penalty of sin. But also, as we found out here, we are freed from the power of sin. It no longer has power or control over the life of a believer. We're free. We're set free, and that's amazing. And soon, not only will we be free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but soon the presence of sin. And that's what we long for, to see Jesus face to face. And, but also, because we're still in the presence of sin, that is why we have this internal battle within us every single day. That's why we are at war. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18 talks about this eternal war that's taking place inside of us. The Bible says the flesh and the spirit, they, they are contrary to one another. And there's a fight and a battle going on every single day inside of us. It says, but don't, go, don't give in to the lust of the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. Well, how do we not give in to the lust of the flesh? Because we're free. We don't have to. We don't have to. It no longer has power or control over us. We are enabled and empowered to walk in the Spirit due to this newness of life because we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And that's the good news. It's such a blessing. And sadly, even though us as believers, as it says in verse 7, are, are dead and free from sin, many of us don't walk in this. Many of us don't grab a hold of this. And because we don't, we are giving in to sin. And sadly, many believers find themselves in forms of bondage by going back, by giving in. When they don't have to, we're free. And that's the, the sad, sad quandary that we are faced with. Sin is pleasurable for this season. Let us never forget where we came from, what we were saved from, what the price he paid for us. So let's walk in this newness of life, not wanting to return back. Why would we be free and want to go back and be slaves? We're bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're under a good, loving master, no longer a master who seeks and desires to still kill and destroy. And so in closing, as we talked about 
a little bit earlier. The Apostle Paul wanted his people, believers, to know certain things. He said, do you not know? He wants us to know and not to be ignorant of certain things that are going to help us in our walk with God, to be the men and women that he's called us to be. And so let us not be ignorant of these things. And I believe in these seven verses, we see things that are of the utmost importance to not be ignorant on, that we should know, apply to our lives, and walk in the newness of life. The first thing is that a true believer will never continue in sin for any reason whatsoever. And so if you talk to people, or if that's you yourself, maybe you would never verbalize it, but you are okay with a little bit of compromise, you're okay with sin in any way, shape, or form, a true believer would not be okay. Certainly not. We pursue and we seek and we desire holiness and righteousness, walking in the newness of life. The second thing is our identity is in Christ now. We've been baptized, immersed. We are with him. Our life is hidden in him. So we need to walk in that newness of life. Understanding that can change everything. We have an identity. We have a purpose. So many young people are going through this world without identity, searching for identity in all these different avenues and different places. But when our identity and who we are is rooted and found in Christ, that changes everything. It changed my life. It changed your life. That's why we're here, amen? We were searching for something. The only thing that could satisfy was in Christ. And so our identity is in him, and we need to walk in the newness of life. The last thing I think it's important to know, to apply, and to operate in, and walk in, is that to constantly remind ourselves the old self is crucified. That sin no longer has power over us whatsoever. And so let's live like it. Let's wage war in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Let's be so far from sin, it no longer has power. Let's not give it power. That's the only power that it can give, that which we allow it to have in the life of a believer. And we don't want sin to have any power because Christ died that we could be set free. And so we're dead to sin and we're alive in Christ and let's live like it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. We do not know where we would be and what we would do without it, God. It is truly a lamp unto our feet, navigating and helping us through this world, God. And so we're so thankful to be able to study, to be able to seek, and to be able to hear and learn and be reminded of these glorious truths, God. And so, Lord, we as your people, Lord, we're just so thankful that you came and died so that we can be set free set free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but we long to see you face to face where we don't even have to be in the presence of sin. Jesus, we want to be with you. We want to see you. We long to hold your nail-scarred hands, to cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Until then, Lord, we're so thankful that we are justified by faith, but You don't just leave us there, Lord. There's a sanctification process. You want us to be more like you. We're so thankful, God, that we will never continue in sin because we're dead to it so that grace could abound more. We're so thankful that our identity is now in you. And since we're free, we're going to live and walk and operate in that. And so help us, Lord. We need you, we want you, we desire you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.
If you are here today and you are separated from God, there's an emptiness, a loneliness, but today you want to do something about that. You're here and you're willing to die to yourself, to say, I'm done doing things my way and I want to become alive in Christ. I no longer want to have the penalty of sin over me. I no longer want to have the power of sin control me. The good news is Christ can set you free today. But you got to be willing to die to yourself and you can become alive in Christ. And it doesn't just mean that you are saved and forgiven and you can begin a relationship with him. You begin the process of becoming more like him, walking in this newness of life. And so it starts with a decision, an important decision in your heart and in your mind. It says, I'm done doing things my way and I want to begin to do things God's way. And you repent, you're turning your, li- your life around and over to him. Then your life can begin. It starts on the inside, dying to yourself. No longer desiring to live for the flesh, but wanting to have a relationship with the true and living God and seek after the things of the Spirit. If you're here today and you want to make that decision, I can pray with you. I can pray for you right where you're seated. And you can receive Christ by faith. The Bible says he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. If you open it up, he will come in. But you got to be willing to die to yourself and then he will make you alive in Christ. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and to close their eyes. And if you're here this morning and you're ready to make the greatest decision of your life, whether it's for the first time or whether you need to rededicate your life, You've allowed yourself to to go back into bondage and to sin, but you want to give your life completely and over to him again and rededicate your life. Whether the first time or rededication, I want to pray for you. Right where you're seated, will you just simply raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm ready. I'm ready to, I see your hand. I ask you to keep your hands up. I see your hand in the back. God bless you. Is there anybody else? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be free. Today is the day to deal with the penalty and the power of sin. Walk out of here free to walk with and talk with God. Begin to walk in that newness of life. Anybody else here? We're going to pray in a moment, but I don't want this time to pass. All right, God bless you. Those of you who raised your hand, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you're watching online, I want to encourage you, if you're ready to make this decision, you can say this prayer as well. It's not about the prayer or the words. It's about the condition of your heart. So quietly where you're seated, just say something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I have sinned and fallen short of your righteousness. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I receive you now as my Lord and my Savior. Please come into my heart and help me to live for you in all that I do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. We rejoice with you this morning. If you said that prayer today, man, you are a new creation. And so if you have any questions, you need some prayer, you need a Bible, something just to help you along with this journey, kind of some next steps, there's people in the prayer room who would love to be and to do that for you. And if you're here and you need a touch, you're struggling, you're hurting, and you just want or need some prayer, there's people that would be blessed to pray for you as well. So God bless you guys. Love you guys. Let's stand up for our final song.